Welcome to episode 91 of the Infectious Historians podcast. I'm Merle. And I'm Lee. It's May 9th, 2022. And in today's episode, we're going to talk about the impact of an epidemic in the Americas and its impact on shaping Christianity. Our guest today is Jennifer Shepard Hughes, who's a professor of history at the University of California at Riverside, which for our international listeners is just outside Los Angeles. Jennifer is a historian of religion, focusing on Latin America and Latinx religions, with special consideration for the spiritual lives of Mexican and Mexican-American Catholics. Jennifer is the author of two books. The first in 2010 from Oxford University Press was entitled Biography of a Mexican Crucifix, Lived Religion and Local Faith from the Conquest to the Present. And that book traces the history of a single sculpted image of Jesus on the cross over five centuries to explore the effective bonds that join devotional communities to vital and agentic objects of material religion. Her second book, which is going to be the focus of today's talk, came out last year, so 2021, from NYU Press, and is entitled The Church of the Dead, The Epidemic of 1576 and the Birth of Christianity in the Americas. So hi, Jennifer, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, so I recently came across Jennifer's book, which brings together two aspects that I think are not done as much together as they should be, which is histories of disease and history of religion and broader culture, we might say. Now, when it comes to the Black Death, there are a number of famous religious changes that have been proposed. Lee's favorite, I think, the flagellants, the people who beat themselves. But it seems that these cultural changes and experiences are still too often left to the side. Religion is obviously one key way that people experience and think about an epidemic or a pandemic, whether it's about thinking about an epidemic as caused by divine wrath in the medieval world or through online Zoom funerals during COVID. And this is an aspect that I think often gets lost in the big macro questions when we discuss economics, demographics, or politics. Yeah, and putting flagellants aside, Merle, I think the episode, or I hope the episode, will also get back to one of the recurring questions on this podcast, and specifically the social or cultural impacts, so to speak, of an epidemic. And we've discussed in previous episodes that diseases are often argued to have had a more significant impact the further back in time you go. And I think the 16th century in this regard really falls in somewhere between the medieval Black Death which we've covered on several episodes and other epidemics and diseases of later periods, such as smallpox, yellow fever, and cholera, which we've also discussed in the past. So I think we're bridging a gap that we had in our coverage, so to speak, so far. And I think more broadly, and also very much of interest to me, it also takes us back across the Atlantic to Central and Southern America, which is an area we said several times that we would want to explore further and haven't really had much chance to do so. I mean, we had a couple of episodes very early on, but nothing in recent times. But before we jump into the interview, Merle, so how have you been since we've last recorded? Yeah, so COVID rates are going back up again due to the new variants. So spreading as it always seems to from the Northeast and then the rest of the country really from there. In this series of outbreaks, it seems like most of the United States is basically ignoring it, kind of downplaying it, pretending it's not happening. There's been no interest in increasing mask mandates or doing anything like that. In fact, actually, the mask mandate on airplanes was lifted in all public transit. And I actually was on an airplane after that was lifted. And so that was a fascinating flight of who's wearing a mask and who's not depending on which side of the flight you were on. Did you wear a mask? Yeah, of course. I'm not a crazy person. Did you wear three masks like you once did? No, I only ever wore two. And I wore one. And it seems to me, if you can't wear a mask for what is in the United States, can't be longer than about a five or five and a half hour flight, then there's some serious issues with, I think, generally speaking, your own sense of self. Right. I mean, this was a three hour flight. I can wear a mask for three hours. It's not that hard. I will say the two different places I was at. So I flew from Washington, D.C. to Oklahoma because I was going out there to close on a house, which is a fascinating endeavor in and of itself for the first time ever. There were definite differences in mask wearing in those two locations. I'll leave it at that. And what about you, Lee? What's happening? Is there any COVID or are you guys just pretending it's all over and nothing is happening? 
Of course, it's all over. I mean, there's no mask mandate. If I understand correctly, there still is some requirement to get tested if you want to go abroad. But as long as you're in here, I mean, the vast majority of people would not wear masks even on public transit or on university classes. So yes, I mean, we haven't like defeated COVID. It just disappeared. I think that's the way to put it here. Do you wear a mask at all anymore? No. Interesting yeah, I, choice. I, yeah. There doesn't seem to be enough cases for this to be anything big at this point. Are they just not reporting cases anymore? I mean, they are reporting. I guess they are. I haven't seen anything about it. But in general, again, it's been out of people's mind. There are bigger things to worry about at this point. The news cycle has kind of like pushed COVID aside and gone to actually the standard issues in this part of the world. Other than that, we had vacations. We've gone back to university, my daughter to daycare. My dog was sick over the past couple of weeks. So we actually took him to a vet and a dog hospital. So that took a lot of time. There were no masks involved by most people there. I think that's definitely one of the few places, certainly left in America, that basically still has a mask requirement for medical facilities, as far as I'm aware. But veterinarians are a bit different, right? Because it's not really a medical, I mean, they pretend as if they are a medical facility, right? They have like operation rooms and they have like all these white cloaks and stuff, but I don't think they're regulated as a medical facility. So it was definitely more fluid there. I won't wade into veterinary regulations in the state of Israel on this podcast. No doggy masks. (laughs) No doggy masks. (laughs) there's zero chance my dog would agree to wear a mask (laughs) even if he could but what about you jennifer so where are you and how are things going on with your life with regards to covid and maybe a bit more broadly over the past several months or weeks yes so i'm in southern california and here people are wearing sometimes masks in grocery stores i was also on a recent flight from new mexico um, round trip and i was surprised at how few people on the flights and in the airports were wearing masks. That took me a little bit by surprise. I am wrapping up. We still have another four weeks or so in our quarter, the teaching quarter, and my students are burning fumes trying to make it to the end of this year with its ongoing COVID impacts. And many of my graduating seniors, because they transfer in from the community college system, they're graduating, and this is the first in-person class they've had on our campus. So they're really have been so happy to be back in person and it's almost contagious how glad they are to be back and even though it's masks optional the students and i are all still pretty much totally masked up in the classroom so that's how things are going here so you taught and teach with a mask on i do well i do that's probably hard earlier on at my university they required all students to be masked and they told students to sit far enough away from us teachers so we could be unmasked and speak. So that's what I did. I was teaching with masks. If I was just going to stay at the lectern or at the front of the classroom, I might not mask, but I kind of like to wander around, you know, the desks and, and talk to the students as I'm lecturing or kind of Oprah style, right? um, So I wear the mask just because if I'm going to be getting you know, within a few feet of the students. I just want to make sure that as I'm talking, they're protected. So it's been fine. Yeah. I just want to add in, Lee, that your teaching situation and guidance clearly falls within the just follow some rule requirement rather than either A, think logically or ask B if the rule makes sense, right? The six foot thing we know is basically a completely made up construct now. And B, also makes no sense because how air moves is through, you know, various ways through the ceiling, through ventilation. So you don't actually get protected just because you are six feet away from someone. I like all those really messed up studies of restaurants that were done early on, usually in like Korea and Japan, where they showed that basically what table you sat at was purely based on how the airflow worked. No comment, Merle. I won't comment on that. Probably your good response when it comes to your own university but I'll leave that alone for now. Maybe we can turn now to the discussion. And as we always do, I like to start pretty broad on these topics. So as Lee pointed out, 
while we've done previous episodes on disease in the Americas, could you maybe remind our listeners what was the role of disease in the European colonization of the Americas? Right. So when we're thinking about epidemics, say the historical impact of European colonization and imperial projects in the Americas, we're really thinking about the whole scope of the colonial period, so 16th century rather, through the 18th century, and then obviously beyond. And the period of particular crisis really is the 16th century, right? And that's also where my work is sort of focused. So maybe to briefly follow up, you gave us a century. What are some of the key diseases as well, right? Is it everything? Is it Lee's favorite, which is plague? Probably not. Or is it other things that are really having a significant impact? Right. So smallpox is probably the original sort of epidemic of the 16th century, European-born epidemic. But really, we have later on cholera and typhus and a range of diseases. Um, These were at one point understood by historians and scholars as virgin soil epidemics, but that idea has really been rejected subsequently and critically interrogated. Right. So today, following your book, we're going to discuss the epidemic of 1576. So would you mind telling us, again, broad contours of what that is, what exactly happens, how long does it last, some broad effects maybe, and so on? Right. So the particular epidemic that is the center of this book takes place from about 1576 to 1581. By some counts, it cost 2 million lives. It took 2 million lives in central Mexico alone. Almost all of those are indigenous people, although there are some African people in the area and also even a few Spanish who suffered. For centuries, it was not clear what this epidemic was, um, what the particular cause of it was. At some point, it was understood to be typhus. At some point, you see in historical records, it gets called smallpox. For the millennium around the 2000, some historians of medicine identified it possibly as a hemorrhagic fever because the single most devastating and deadly final symptom was general hemorrhage, including especially from the nose. And so indigenous sources actually write about it. It's represented as a person seating who's in a pictographic kind of writing as someone who's bleeding from their nose. So very recently, there was a very similar pandemic, even more devastating in pure numbers, possibly around 1545. The indigenous name, the Nahuatl name that was given to it is Kokolitzli. But there are some studies from 1545, DNA studies, that suggest that it may have been a Salmonella enterica. But in any case, I think we can understand that the 1545 and 1576 can't be encompassed or really explained within this virgin soil pandemic. They very much are born and bred from the circumstances of colonial rule, Spanish invasion, and the devastation ecologically and the impact on health and agriculture caused by that invasion. And what, again, broadly speaking, even introductory level, what were the effects of these diseases? I mean, how do we describe these diseases? Uh, I think I at least encountered those diseases first in the context of Jared Diamond's book, Guns, Germs, and Steel, as an even before undergrad, I think. So are we still somewhere around that narrative or is the narrative changed? And either way, if you can again give us like the 30,000 feet overview of this narrative. Yeah, I mean, I think that most significant impact of these 16th century diseases is the demographic cataclysm for indigenous peoples in the Americas, right? So that, you know, original population is estimated to have been as much as 100 million people in the Americas before the arrival of the Europeans. And the devastation to that population that actually is legible in kind of geological terms, right? Actually legible in the ice core, for example, the demographic impact. And of course, I hope we get a chance to talk about this. There are ongoing debates about the relation between death caused by disease and then death by imperial violence and the extractive economic 
policies and the interrelation of those. So I guess my first question is, did the European colonizers, imperialists, did they react to this? I mean, did they notice that everyone was dying, you know, maybe from a political point of view, all these types of things? I mean, what's happening? You know, what are they writing about? How are they seeing these things? Right. So my work focuses especially on Iberian colonialism, sort of Spanish colonial rule, right? So thinking especially about Spanish America and, and the sort of Spanish imperial project, which in many ways is obviously distinct in its intentions and aims from British colonialism or even French colonialism in the Americas. So for the Spanish, they perceived most importantly the economic impact of this devastation because their entire project in the Americas was based on the sort of commodification of indigenous bodies and lives and the extraction of wealth in the project of making those people into subjects of the king. So for the Spanish, the epidemics really threatened the entire kind of colonial project, which they came to regard as very precarious, which is something that historians don't often think about, right? Okay, so what happens if we nuance the chronology a bit or zoom in a bit? I mean, earlier on, before the Spanish actually have an imperial project, right, right they're there as conquerors. And I would imagine that they would probably have a different attitude towards the effects or the impacts of these diseases early on. Is that the case? Or do they even notice as they conquer, right? Because diseases start affecting indigenous peoples, I would imagine somewhere around the beginning of the 16th century. Exactly. So you're referring to kind of the earliest period of the imperial project would be the sort of conquistadors, right? And their experience. So the interesting thing about these sort of smallpox, for example, is that it actually spreads kind of from the Spanish and it precedes them as, for example, Hernan Cortes makes his death march through Mexico toward the Aztec capital Tenochtitlan. They're aware that the diseases are arriving in communities that are already compromised by disease, right? So their capacity, for example, to conquer Tenochtitlan is facilitated in some part by disease. Although there were other factors that I think are more significant, like their alliances with the Tlaxcalans, for example, that ultimately led to their success. So in that earlier part, how do they think about these diseases? Do they comment on them beyond saying, oh, we got to this village and it was empty? In Bernal Diaz's account, which is a conquistador account of the conquest, disease doesn't actually figure in massively or significantly really until they make that approach into Tenochtitlan and they think about a city that's sort of in a way already laid waste in a sense. And of course, this is a disease they recognize, they recognize what it is. Both Spanish and indigenous people have a sense of contagion, right? And might be different than our sense right now in this period, but they have that sense. So and do they associate it with themselves at any point over the 16th century? Do they kind of realize, oh, this is because we came here? Again, they had a sense of contagion. I don't know that they had a sense that these diseases weren't already present, right, in the Americas, right? They didn't overall have a sense of their complicity in the spread of disease, right? Although obviously we have in other parts of the Americas and other times in history, the sort of weaponization and the deployment of disease as part of the colonial project, right? In terms of infecting indigenous communities. But in the case of Spanish America, they were interested in preserving the indigenous population, right? Not destroying it. So with respect to that economic impact, when we move beyond that period of the conquistadors themselves into periods of settlement, their task was to actually preserve indigenous life, right, for the purpose of colonial rule. And then many of those conquistadors became encomenderos, that is, holders of indigenous labor. And so they had an investment after the initial waves of violence and really making sure that people remained alive. And that included building hospitals and providing frontline medical care. So if I understand correctly, 
the entire paradigm through which they thought about these diseases was the economic paradigm, right? So, okay, we need our profits, we need our labor. Those things are being damaged, hurt, disrupted, right? And, and, and modern parlance by this disease. So we have to somehow take care of that. But there doesn't seem to have been much thought about the reasons for this disease, right? Whether these reasons are more uh, scientific or maybe proto-scientific based or religious based, it's just a thing that happened and we need to deal with it. I would say that that is partially the case. I mean, we have certainly some discourse in 16th century documents quite a bit about the causes and origins, right? Not necessarily about the disease, but about the reason why people are dying, right? And whether that is disease or whether that is colonial violence. So in the early decades of Spanish presence in the Americas, there are many letters, just floods of letters being sent back to the king about people dying, right? About indigenous people dying and indigenous communities suffering the sort of cataclysmic death. And those describe disease as the culprit, right? And then you have someone like Bartolome de las Casas who comes in and says, this has really nothing to do with disease. He basically says, this has to do with colonial violence and extraction and exploitation. And that's really the reason why so many people are dying. And there are sort of also theological explanations that come to bear. What I don't see so much in the documents from, say, the mid-16th century on is this sense that disease is punishment for Indigenous people. In fact, that idea is repudiated over and over again in the Spanish documents. So maybe picking up on this kind of transition or this idea of punishing people for disease, at the same time that all of this is happening, the Spanish colonizers were interested, at least in the accounts I always have read about this, you know, probably in high school at this point, about spreading Christianity quite a bit. So could you tell us maybe pretty simply why this is and how they did it, maybe like the standard narrative on this, and then we'll get to the intersection of disease and religion shortly. So I would say that the standard narrative would say that the primary agenda was economic and that religion, religious conversion, conversion to Roman Catholic Christianity, specifically in this context, were sort of an excuse or a justification. And my work is different than that, takes a, a different stance, which is that for the kind of 16th century ethos of Spanish settlers and that there was no distinction, right? These are completely imbricated and not mutually exclusive, but actually mutually reinforcing projects, right? And so the economic labor is designed also to strengthen the infrastructure of the church in the Americas, right? And then vice versa. And so they are mutually enforcing the first missionaries to Mexico arrive in 1520s in a kind of ceremonial arrival. And there's a famous scene in which Hernan Cortez kneels before 12 Franciscan missionaries and kisses the hem of their skirts, kind of saying, now the military conquest is complete. Now the spiritual conquest can begin. So it was framed as a spiritual conquest. Out of curiosity, these early Christian missionaries, how are they going about doing this? Is this like, you know, they go to the person in charge of a village and they convince that person to convert and everyone else kind of just follows suit? Are they doing lots of catechesis? I mean, how are they doing this? Everything just out of curiosity is, do they have a specific targeted approach that changes or is it kind of just whatever they can do? So the idea of conversion in this period is not what you might think today, right? It's not an individual discernment. It's not that sort of conversion of mind in that very individual sense, both for Spanish and indigenous people in this period. It's a collective act, right? So for the Spanish, when they arrive in these towns, like Hernan Cortez, for example, when he comes with his posse, they read a statement called the requerimiento, which basically says, we're giving you a choice. You can either willingly submit to the king and queen and accept the religion on your own, you know, voluntarily, or if you decline, we'll make war on you, right? So by the time the Spanish have made their military conquest of Tenochtitlan, 
they understand that that conquest has already accomplished in some sense the conversion of the indigenous people. They are de facto Christians, right? That now the purpose of the missionaries that arrive is not so much conversion, but indoctrination and catechesis, as you say, right? So they see themselves not as making converts, but in trying to make substandard Christians in their view into better Christians. And how does all this look like from the perspective of the indigenous people? I mean, why do they convert? I mean, I guess you could say that they convert to avoid war at the beginning, but why do they keep on buying into something that is so closely associated with their conquerors? So the arrival of Europeans to the Americas in this very early moment, right? The kind of earliest arrival, we could say, and the military invasion and the related demographic cataclysm, on the one hand, sort of threatened structures, the integrity of indigenous cultural and religious structures. It threatened kind of sovereignty over land and over governance, structures of self-governance. And at the same time, we have indigenous communities making alliances, right, with the Spanish strategic alliances that have to do with long-term standing historic um, conflicts, for example. So for Mesoamerican cultures, their cosmology, you could say, the way that I have come to understand it is that it was inclusive right and expansive so when they encountered in my reading of mesoamerica central mexico in particular in the 16th century they did not necessarily see that the adoption of christian deities and gods and i use that in the plural was exclusive of their own ancestral inherited religious beliefs that these could be adopted within their own cosmologies and worldviews. Some of the greatest conflict and violence really came over the question of Christian exclusivity, right? So for the Spanish, Christianity was to be an exclusive religion. And so some of the greatest violence you see in the 16th century is really between Spanish Christians against indigenous people who also understood themselves to be Christian. But the violence is really about who controls Christianity, the nature of Christianity, who decides what is orthodox, right, and correct as Christian practice. So now I guess we've laid out those two different key poles, which is the question of religion and the question of the disease. So obviously we now want to bring them together. So starting off first, how did the Spanish church and missionaries you described a bit how they reacted early on, but later on react to these various epidemics. I mean, are they trying to help people? Are they trying to explain this in new theologies, new moral discourses? I mean, how are they thinking about what's happening around them? So for the Spanish, their purpose in the Americas was to make new Christian subjects for the king. And also they regarded the earliest Spanish missionaries say, from the 1520s through to toward the end of the 16th century, really understood the church in Europe had become sort of morally bankrupt and that the future of Christianity really lay in the Americas in what they called the new world. So they put the hope for sort of Christian renewal in that project. They put their hope in a kind of restoral or restoration of the earliest iterations of Christianity, the kind of apostolic early centuries, right? That this was to be a new beginning, a new foundation for Christianity. So to have indigenous people suffering cataclysmic death, whether by disease or colonial uh, violence, threatened the future of Christianity, period, full stop, not just in the Americas, but really its future globally. And so they really did this powerful thing. I think it's probably one of the most significant innovations in what I would say monastic identity. So these are monks, Franciscans, Augustinians, Dominicans. They transformed their primary identity into being conservadores de indios, that is preservers of indigenous life, right? They never 
were fully able to understand that their presence was complicit or facilitating that uh, loss and suffering, they saw themselves as creating a kind of um, buffer. So what you actually have is them transforming themselves into frontline nurses, hospitaleros, doctors, medics. And this was really against the grain in my reading of the European and especially Spanish mores of the time in which you see professionalism of medicine, right? And the need for credentials and professionalization of medical training, right? And so in a way in, in Mexico, the church kind of reemerges as the primary purveyor of medical care. And so when people arrive ill to the monastery missions, you have the friars providing this sort of sequence of ritual actions that would include administering medicinal syrups, offering last rites, offering prayer, even baptism at the same time as last rites, this sort of muddling. And then even in my reading of some of the documents, bleeding people, which there were prohibitions against Catholic clergy bleeding people by this time. So there's this sort of almost panicked kind of effort to try to mitigate the loss and to save life. And that becomes part of their whole sort of ethos and mentality. I would imagine that this closer contact between both these communities, right? So the missionaries on one hand and the indigenous people on the other hand would get them to know each other better, right? So do you see any change in the way in which the missionaries view the native peoples? as they work together or treat them through these epidemics? So these relationships were very intimate and familiar relationships. They involved very intimate care, physical care, and friars going into people's homes, for example, taking care of their bodies, taking care of their families. So there is always a sort of familiarity one of the things that I write about is that the Spanish were part of this imperial project and the imperial project of kind of global church is that indigenous people would become part of the body of Christ, this expanding body of Christ. So what's actually noteworthy, I think, in my studies that maybe other historical studies have missed and those that maybe focus on history of medicine without really being attentive to the kind of theological ideas at work that underpin these structures is that the Spanish missionaries saw themselves as part of a shared body with indigenous people, right? So in some sense, they were trying to absorb these bodies into this body of Christ, that bodies were porous, they were not necessarily individuated, that the bodies of the Spanish were not necessarily other from the bodies of indigenous people. And in some way, in this process of absorbing, there is also a really profound colonial violence that could be understood almost as cannibalistic, right, in that sort of theological sense. So there is this sense, actually, of the way that medicine and the response to epidemics is also designed in what I saw in my research to homogenize and to transform. Medicine is used as a way of kind of transforming indigenous people and their bodies into Christian bodies, right? That's part of the missionary project. Can I ask, I guess, on the flip side of this, you know, you've been talking about how this significantly transformed Christian missionaries, but how did indigenous people also respond to the epidemics as well? I mean, is it in the same way? Do they become, you know, more part of the Catholic Church? Do they change the Catholic Church? I mean, how are they responding to it as well? Yes. So for Indigenous people, the epidemics, and in particular, the epidemic that I focus on, which is this epidemic in 1576, that epidemic really threatened to a new extent to undermine indigenous social structures, to undermine indigenous sovereignty. It also sort of threatened further Spanish incursion and dispossession of indigenous land. And so even as we're seeing communities lose half of their population or even more in the course of this epidemic, they are mobilized and focused on protecting and even in some cases extending what they have, one of the things I see in this particular epidemic is that they are 
working to construct and fund and staff their own kind of hospitals or clinics. And these would be sort of hybrid in some ways following a European model, but in other ways using indigenous structures, cultural structures and healing modes and modalities. So there's a system of indigenous hospitals that you see described in Spanish documents that is really under their own care and design. And I think that's a subject that really needs some deep further research. They're also concerned to protect orphans and the rights of orphans to inherited lands. They are also concerned. So one of the things that happens in the epidemic is that although so many people have died, basically taxation of indigenous communities remains, and there's even some threat to increase it. So they're expected to tithe the same amount, even as the population is lost. So you see in one instance, for example, a community that is sending representatives to the viceroy to ask not to have to pay what they call tithes for the dead, right? So they're actually, in a sense, taxing those who have died from this pandemic. They're also trying to underscore, protect, and as I said, even extend some of the most important Mesoamerican cultural structures and structures of the, I guess you could say, Mesoamerican indigenous city-state. And they, in my book, I write about how they're able to leverage the church as a way of protecting these structures. So there is a strategic response, I would say, to defend the integrity of their communities from further Spanish encroachment and conversion. What about the sources? for this period from the indigenous perspective. So when do we start getting sources written by indigenous people? It's really important that your listeners, I think, know that there are codices, indigenous codices, written histories that predate the arrival of the Spanish. So the Spanish destroy those as part of their conversion process. And then indigenous communities work to recreate them and, and try to preserve those and protect them from future destruction. So indigenous communities are also from very early on working to preserve their rights by writing letters to the king, by advocating for themselves along Spanish colonial legal channels, and by capturing their histories. So there are indigenous sources, for example, from the epidemic of 1576, there are indigenous accounts of this epidemic for example. Can I ask, maybe we can use the 1576 account, and do we have specific examples of how then indigenous Christians shape, you know, the church that emerges in what's now Mexico, whether it's institutionally or theologically or really anything else in between? Right. So for me, in my work, I've really tried to look at how indigenous people in Mesoamerica grappled with, responded to, made sense of Christianity. And what I've looked at is the ways that communities have navigated it on their own terms. They have discerned as communities which parts of the religion are powerful, meaningful, holy, and which parts are unacceptable, which parts are to be rejected. Right. So this you see in a very pronounced way in this moment of crisis, because there's a way in which in the midst of this particular epidemic, the kind of future of the church as the Spanish imagined it is really shaken loose and cracked open in a sense. And so there's an opportunity that indigenous people, especially here I'm talking about indigenous Catholic Pueblos de Indios. So I'm talking about communities that have understood themselves to be Catholic for half a century already, right? Have understood themselves to be Christian. And they work to kind of leverage this moment to reassert a vision of the church in which that church is under the authority, not so much of Spanish clerics, but rather of indigenous elites that is under community authority and rule, and that posits indigenous territorialities, inherited territorialities, as the primary geography of American Catholicism over and against, say, the Spanish diocese with a Spanish bishop at the helm as the model of church for the Americas. 
to try to make this a bit more personal or zoom in even more to an individual level. So how might such an individual, and, and feel free to pick any example here on, on either side, either or both sides. So how would individuals experience and feel about what was going on around them and to them maybe during this epidemic, right? The 1576 epidemic. I mean, if you have evidence for that, how did that shape or influence their own personal religious views during or maybe after the epidemic? So it's interesting to kind of center the individual, right? Because Spanish sources tend to erase individual indigenous identities, especially in the crisis of when talking about the epidemic, they're tending to speak in larger terms and they're speaking, writing obviously from their own perspective, right? And so that's a struggle for a lot of colonial historians working in the times and places that I'm working in is that those individual experiences tend to be erased and eclipsed, whereas like the European individual, you know, is named and identified and, and held up in that perspective is really um, centered. And then also, of course, the idea of the individual also being very much this kind of European modern, <laughs> you know, a product of the exact processes that I've been talking about here. So one of the things I do is when I'm talking about Spanish individuals like the Spanish Archbishop of Mexico during the time of this particular epidemic, is I basically say, well, I'm going to tell you who he is, and then I'm going to also kind of erase his um, individuality, right? And just, he becomes transformed into this kind of generic Spanish ecclesial body on a landscape. But I can talk about two Spanish bishops who I think held very different experiences and perspectives. You have the Spanish Archbishop, of Mexico during the pandemic, Moya de Contreras, who, when we encountered my book, is kind of hiding out in his cathedral, trying to weather the storm. And at a certain moment in between two surges, we could say he steps out of his cathedral to kind of survey the devastated landscape as he describes it. And upon that landscape, he works to assert his vision for the future of the church in the aftermath of this pandemic, which is one with bishops in charge, which is one that gathers what he regards as sort of a remnant population, and then one in which he's going to repopulate the colony with Spanish European settlers. So he's a very conservative force. And then we have this Bishop of Michoacan, Medina Rincon, who has a completely different experience. He's much more profoundly critical, and he basically says, whatever we thought we we're doing here, it's been a disaster. And I've given, he writes to the king, I've told you what we need to do to remedy this. People are being exploited, they're being killed, that this system is basically disastrous. I've told you what we, I think we need to do to remedy it. No one's listening. So rather just get me out of here. I want no part of it. So he takes this in the midst of this epidemic, a very different experiential approach, I would say. And just a quick question to better understand the dynamics here. So were these Spanish bishops kind of like the best and the brightest Spain had to offer? Or were these like uh, nobodies or mediocrities that were just like sent overseas to forget about them or something? Absolutely. Those missionaries that came were the best that Spain and Europe had to offer, right? These were polyglots. They spoke multiple languages, then come to Mexico and they learn many more languages, master many more languages, they would say. They have uh, particularly pronounced Christian zeal. They physically embody the Christian practice. They're disciplined. They're inspiring. <laughs> so they send their kind of best and brightest. And by the time of this epidemic now, these, some of these missionaries have been close to half a century, right, in the Americas. So it's really a crisis of faith, of personal faith, or at least some of them, right? The second example that you gave. So it's someone who is reflective enough. I'm not sure if we can describe it in that way, but part of the intellectual or religious elite within the Spanish church who kind of gets all disillusioned in this colonial context, which is not something I would have imagined. I mean, this early on, I can see this happening later, but 16th century is early. Right. So there's actually some work even 50 years ago, some work that really was looking at interrogating this moment of sort of spiritual crisis, apocalyptic crisis. 
this crisis of faith that in my research with the, the materials and the historical documents that I was working with really kind of affirmed that sense of, of despair that the church is really in crisis at this moment. And that crisis, as I read it in the critical ways that I read it, is also the crisis of an imperial church, right? That in some sense is theologically bankrupt, right? In its very origins. And there's an effective dimension, emotional dimension to that despair and that, that sense of precarity that in my work, I argue also does kind of the work of, of empire building. So as we near the end, I want to zoom out again. And one of the big questions that we've talked to a couple other scholars about that seems to perhaps loom large over this field and disease is differentiating between disease that causes, you know, some of these big structural changes and other horrific acts of violence and other colonial events at the same time, we might say. So how do you grapple with this tension over, you know, whether or not disease causes something or is even a cause versus other just terrible things that the colonizers are doing? So one of the things that is noteworthy, I think, from this period is that even in the moment that this is happening, that this crisis, catastrophe, and I would say the whole 16th century is a catastrophe, right? It's a series of, of catastrophes, is that the Spanish are debating the causes, as I described, you know, whether it's colonial violence, whether it is imperial rule, extractive labor, or whether it's disease. So that's a debate that is now over 500 years old. And we see it continuing in the present, right, as well. I also want to say that indigenous communities themselves debated the causes of the loss that they were experiencing, or that they gave different answers. So there's one source that I consult for my study that where indigenous communities are giving multiple answers for why they're undergoing what they're going. And one of them is disease as disease. That is one of the main ones, but also the second one is labor, right? Is the structure of labor. So in this book, I don't kind of weigh in on that. I'm not trying to say that disease is more important than these other things. In fact, I think we know that colonial violence and the structures of imperial rule compromised people's health, compromised people's ability to practice the kind of health practices that were part of their cultural systems and structures that helped them stay well and stay healthy and recover from disease. So I don't intend to, in my work, weigh in on that, but rather to give this complex picture in which disease is, is a part. Right. So I think as we near the end of this interview, one question that is of interest to me, I mean, especially in context of your work more broadly, and also more specifically writing in the United States within the context of indigenous communities over there, has your historical work influenced your views about some of the questions that are debated or discussed in the present, partially about indigenous communities, but also other disadvantaged communities within, let's limit the discussion to the United States? And if so, how? How has it affected it? So I began this project 10 years ago in archives in Spain with a question of how these two massive events, historic events, shaped each other, right? How people's experience of beginning to understand themselves or identify as Christian was shaped by the fact of catastrophic epidemic disease. And I could never imagine when I began that, that the book would kind of come to conclusion in the midst of a global pandemic. So it's been interesting in that sense. The sources that I'm drawing on are are written and emerge in this moment that is in between the end of the epidemic and its aftermath. I think that's very much where we are right now, right? Sort of the epidemic is ending and we're in this space before we can really think about the aftermath. One of the things that I've realized as we try to make sense of where we are from wherever we're positioned and what this current epidemic means for us 
now and then its longer term historical impacts is that actually it's very hard for us to see in the present this current crisis what its historical impacts will be right so i can see that in the reading about this 1576 epidemic is that they were struggling to figure out what it meant struggling to figure out its causes and trying to figure out what future lay before them and that was true for spanish and for the catholic indigenous communities that i have been reading about and so it's sometimes hundreds of years later before you see what trajectories were laid out or emerged and what was possible. I also think that our current epidemic creates a structural crisis, right? That is global and also very local that does allow the possibility for more just structures to emerge, more just relationships to emerge, but then also we see that it's opposite, right? Where there are competing bids to not just re-entrench the status quo and defend and shore up the status quo, but actually for more conservative, more oppressive states and governments and policies to emerge. And so I think where we are now, both of those remain open possibilities from this pandemic, right? The possibility for more just relationships to emerge, more just societies, and the possibility for more oppressive projects also to take hold. So I see it as a, a kind of liminal space in between the end of the pandemic and its aftermath. So I think with that, that's a good place to stop and wrap things up. So I just wanted to thank you so much, Jennifer, for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm glad to have this conversation with infectious historians. Thanks a lot, Jennifer. It's been great. Great. So I thought that was a very interesting interview because it resonated with me in, on several different levels. I think one of the levels where it resonated was the connection, I mean, there was obviously the connection between the epidemic and religion, but one of the things that uh, we discussed a bit more earlier in the interview was really the, the way to understand the epidemic through really an economic paradigm, right? So the epidemic is bad because it's killing people and these people are supposed to produce or provide labor and resources and they're not there to give it to back then to the Spanish colonial administration. What do you think, Merle? Has this I mean, resonated with you and contemporary discussions about opening or reopening the economy and kind of like disregarding the welfare of people? Yes, but what I would also say is I was tempted, as you know, I've written about taxes and tax structures recently, and I'm still actually doing a bit of that. And so I did want to ask a whole bunch of follow-ups about the fiscal system in which this was all operating, but I decided I shouldn't push us completely on a tangent to that. And I knew if I did that you would just be less than thrilled, we'll put it that way. You mean zone out? That's probably would have happened or you would have laughed at me while I'm mute. One of those two. That happens very often, I will say to our listeners. But I do think, to make your point, that there is a clear, close connection between economics and disease. What I would also say is it's interesting how much I think people running economic structures will do to avoid severe disruptions and often how perhaps even successful they can be, right? I mean, she gave us a story of people wanting a reduction in tides, for example, because all these people have died and the state doesn't really want to do that, right? So that people still want their taxes, essentially, right? And they still want their economic systems to function no matter what. Well, I mean, from my perspective, again, as a medieval historian, that's a question that I've encountered in my own work, right? In medieval Byzantium. And what happens when an area gets depopulated and the state, the government still wants its taxes from that area? So... Yeah, well, we could have asked about it. I would tolerate some of that at least. Well, I'm sorry I didn't. Next time I'll ask all about fiscal structures. 
and we'll just do it on our new podcast, Merle and Leah discuss fiscal structures. But I will say, you know, although we framed it, you know, in that way in terms of economics or what was the impact of all these epidemics or this one epidemic, you know, it was also more interesting and very different for me to talk about some of these religious impacts on both sides, you know, whether it's in particular, obviously, on the indigenous people who are so often bear the burden of these diseases, but also even on the colonizer side, right, how they shifted their worldviews religiously. Right. And I think when she gave the examples of two bishops, I can't recall their names, but the second bishop, I think, and specifically the crisis of faith that he went through as a result of this made me think, right? So he's basically being sent overseas to spend, I guess, much of his life, if not the rest of his life, in a very distant place. And probably has very strong religious conviction about what he's doing, the world in which he lives. And then he has to encounter something so completely different than anything he expected in the past. Again, not a perspective you would often see, or I would at least, I would not have thought of that otherwise. Yeah, that's fair. And I think it also gives us just those two different bishops two different examples of two different types of reactions to something that's happening, right? And there's obviously probably many more in between that are lost and that we don't know. And certainly the same is the case for indigenous voices as well as Jennifer, I think very neatly and correctly pointed out that are also lost in terms of how they reacted to these epidemics. Right, and then that connects to the question of what is the experience of an epidemic? I mean, how do we choose what is the experience of an epidemic, right? I mean, you can ask that about the 1576 epidemic that we discussed here, but you can also ask the same thing about anything else, right? From the Black Death all the way to COVID. Yeah, I mean, I think that last point, you know, when she was talking about COVID and, you know, how people living through an epidemic are always uncertain of what's coming is actually something we wrote about very early on during COVID, if you recall, Lee, that not every epidemic is the same, and we don't know how this is going to develop. But the industry in, say, op-eds, when it came to historians, was to give very concrete, specific, you know, this is what happened in the past, this is what will happen in the future, or this is the type of things that are happening, this is what may happen. When in reality, as we've talked to, you know, dozens of guests now, who have all stressed that their individual personal situation is quite different than you and I and from everyone else we've had on practically. And so to kind of suggest that, you know, this is what's going to happen is quite difficult as you're living through the epidemic phase. No, right. I mean, kind of predicting the future based on the past, I mean, that's relatively naive even in a sense. But the question is whether there is like a majority view, I guess, of what the experience of an epidemic is. And I think, again, reflecting on the podcast and the 91 episodes we've had, We've seen, I mean, not only are both of our experiences different, but I think more or less each guest we bring on has a different experience, right? And some of these people live closer to us, others live further away, but uh, it's generally, I would say relatively unique individually, that is. Yeah, I think that's true. This is actually something I think that Keith Whaley brought up when we discussed COVID with him, right? That everyone's view of this in different states was actually quite different. Yeah. 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 One thing that I'd like to add here at the end that's been percolating in my mind during our discussion with Jennifer was how much a lot of these reactions sounded very late antique or very medieval. I mean, I thought in particular of, you know, Charlemagne and the Saxons. Do you know this discussion, Lee? I think I do. Yeah. Where he goes across and he conquers the Saxons by war and then they all get converted, quote unquote. And this is a lot longer of an endeavor. I mean, it sounded medieval and late antique in one sense, but in the other sense, she definitely has much better sources than what we have, right? So, I mean, I would love to be able to say like 1% of what she has or what she can say about her, so to speak, epidemic. I would have loved to say something this detailed about, let's say, the favorite of this podcast, right? The Justinianic plague, where we just don't have uh, this kind of rich source material. And I think that reflecting on that, 
it kind of pushes our own histories to be much more top down, right? So, so the state and what the state or the emperor or the king or whatever, what are they doing and how are they reacting? Whereas I think in this case, she was able to provide a much more nuanced, detailed view of how things looked like at the ground of people who actually were at the, so to speak, forefront of engaging and countering this epidemic. So yeah, there was definitely a medieval or late antique feel, but it was not exactly the same, which I guess is pretty obvious. So things are different and things are the same. Thank you for that. Yeah, a profound conclusion there. So I guess that with this profound conclusion, we can move on to wrapping up the episode. But before that, I would want to ask you, Merle, so what kind of music do your kids like to listen to? Well, when it comes to music, I'm of one mind, which is I don't really feel like listening to quote unquote kid songs. So I just listen to whatever I want to listen to and then kids get into that. So my kids, for example, are really into ACDC Thunderstruck, one of their favorites. They really like Johnny Cash as well. Yeah, I think you spoke about Johnny Cash at some point in the past, right? But basically you're saying that they're like your captive audience. So you could just like indoctrinate them with whatever music you like. Well, the issue is, is at least my kids like music. And so why would I listen to music that I don't like and I don't want to listen to when they like other music just as much? Do they try to rebel? I mean, I don't know if they watch like the Disney movies or there's some kind of equivalent. But I mean, I remember from my own childhood that those had like pretty catchy songs. I mean, my daughter hasn't watched anything yet. So I'm still out on this one. But have they listened to the music from there? And do they like music from there? And if so, do they kind of like rebel against your musical taste? Well, they don't listen to classical Disney songs because they don't watch classical Disney movies. They don't like them. So the only things they like are kind of last 15, 20 years, which are not the cartoons. So they've moved away from, you know, specific songs like that that you remember. And they're now more of just, you know, general pop songs. So that's what they like, actually. Wait, so, and, so modern day Disney has pop songs in it? Like, you are so out of touch with, you know. I mean, I'm, I'm actually, reality. I'm actually, <laughs> no, I'm proud to be out of touch on this one. But yeah, we're, we're still not in that phase. Yeah, because I assume your daughter is still napping. Once the nap is yes. gone, you're completely <laughs> toast. So I wish you luck. Yeah, well, we'll see what happens. Yeah, what okay, does your so, daughter listen to? So, I mean, kind of a mix. I have taught her a few songs that she is very much into. So The Wheels on the Bus is basically the song with which she goes to sleep every night. Yeah, but I think... All the children's music is always things that I sing. So she never like hears those, those songs like on her own. So she can ask me, can you sing me the wheels on the bus? And then I, I sing that. So you don't play any music for her ever? No, so I don't play any children's music for her. But I do play other music. So for example, there was probably like two or three months in which I, every time she woke up, I always used to play Bob Marley, Three Little Birds by Bob Marley. Yeah, and then so redemption just, songs, which she also really liked. She yeah, would play that every morning, like again and again. See what I mean? It's much easier, much better when you choose the music. But I think it's also harder for her, right? So it's harder for her to identify those songs, right? So wheels on the bus, it's very easy to just say wheels because it's so repetitive, right? So she can just say wheels and get that song. But if she wants like a Bob Marley song, so you can say Bob Marley, but then I say, okay, what song do you want to hear? And the best we got with her is to say oatmeal. Do you know why? No, you can tell me. Because in Bob Marley's No Woman, No Cry, there's a, a line there where he says, and we will cook oatmeal porridge, which I'll share with you. And she likes to eat oatmeal every day, right? So she says oatmeal and she points to that song. Which I, I guess she also learned No Woman, No Cry. I mean, the name of that song. So, But more than that is much more difficult. I mean, understanding that there are like different people who sing these songs and different songs by those people is a concept that's still foreign to her. I mean, she's like two years and two months. You have to give them names. So for example, there's a song called Dad's Song. 
there's mom song. Each one of them has a song for them. So they know to ask for them and play them. So what's dad song? So dad song is 8675309. The 80s song. Do you know that? No. Oh, <laughs> so uncultured. We'll have to have a discussion about songs, I guess, at some point. Okay. Yeah. We, we should have a discussion about songs and maybe in one of these other podcasts, Merle, that you keep like mentioning as potential alternatives to, or add-ons to this one. But until we, we get there, we we're going to end this episode on this happier note, I guess, songs and children. And at that, we would like to thank our sponsors at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem and Penn State University for funding this podcast. And as usual, our team that does a lot of the work behind the scenes, our sound editor, Amitai Barlavi, and our webmaster, Verder Kanat. Until next time, stay safe, get boosted if you can, and let us know what you like to play for your kids.